0: This morning we're uh, continuing our teaching through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. So the the verse for today is Matthew 5, 4. You probably don't even have to turn there because you can remember it or you heard it before. And it's this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In, In other words, blessed or happy or whole or flourishing, or or the, the way I put it last week, Jesus is saying something like, the good life belongs to those who are crying all the time. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And if we think about it, mourning is really a right response to the way that the world is. It's a right response to living in a fallen world. Last Sunday evening, I had my parents over for dinner, and then they went home, and in a, within a half an hour, they called, and it was one of those things where I, I see their name on my phone, and it's either uh, they forgot something, or it's an emergency, you know, so I'm going back and forth, like, okay, what's this going to be about? Where should my blood pressure, my stress level be here? I pick up the phone, and my mom sounded mournful, and she said, we just got a call from one of your cousins. And another cousin of yours was working on his pickup, and his pickup fell on top of him, crushed him, and he's dead. And this is a a cousin who I sort of grew up with. He's about eight years older than me. And I haven't seen him in like literally decades, probably haven't seen him, but we've interacted a little bit on Facebook. And so it was kind of this moment of like, whoa, where does that fit? Where does something like that fit in the world? but when you look at the headlines of the world when you when you look at anything that's happening in the world that's what we see that's what we experience and in in a sense those are the kind of things that we should mourn so i'll ask you what do you mourn personally what what causes you to mourn is it life is it suffering is it broken relationship Is it conflict? Is it loneliness? Is it death? Is it loss? Because when we truly look at the suffering in our world, it's difficult to believe that we could really do anything but mourn. The Bible is clear that sin has affected every aspect of life in this world. So if you have your Bible, I would ask you to turn to Romans chapter 8. And the Apostle Paul who wrote this, very clearly points out how sin has troubled the world in which we live. It's Romans chapter 8, there in the New Testament. And starting at verse 20, he says this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. So life is a groaning. And it's not just us who groan because of the the brokenness and fallenness of the world. What Paul is saying is that the actual creation is groaning that the earth and the heavens are groaning because of the sinfulness of men. And it's this groaning, that the picture is that it's something under a weight, something with a tremendous burden or weight on its back. And there's a longing for relief in this burning burden and in this groaning. And biblical mourning is a groaning of sorts. Now, Paul says here, it's interesting in verse 23... It says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. And what Paul's getting at there is that there's actually something else inside us that's causing us to groan, that's causing us to mourn, as we as we live in this broken world, as we suffer the effects of sin, something else, not ourselves, that's causing us to groan. Well, what is it here? He says, for those who follow Jesus, for those who are sons and daughters of God, it's the first fruits of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, God Himself, is inside of us teaching us and leading us and causing us to groan. He's the one that's doing the groaning, and we're kind of along for the ride. And the picture here is that God's heart is broken because of how the world is. God's heart is broken because of how the world is, and it's Him inside of us breaking our hearts for the things that break His. That's what should be happening to us to us as believers, as we're listening to God, as we're sensitive to the Spirit, as we live in this world, that that His Spirit is groaning within us and causing us to mourn. So our hearts, too, should be broken as God's is. And the picture of a mature believer in Scripture is a picture of one whose heart is broken for the things that break God's heart. And I want to point out three things this morning that break God's heart and that should break ours. The first is, is that our hearts should be broken over suffering in the world. Our hearts should be broken over the suffering of the world. Because if we look at the world, we just flat out know that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. The world is subjected to futility. Human life is sometimes tragic, unjust. There's death and illness and oppression. There's too much wind up here and it blows our music away okay there's too many evils to name in the world and on small scales and on large scales the the burden of sin creates a weight on the planet which is just overwhelming and if we've learned nothing from the last 15 months of a global pandemic we can learn that the the world is broken and that it that it strains under this burden of sin and corruption and so when I, as a believer, when you, as, as someone who follows G- Jesus, decides to weep with those who weep, weep with those who are suffering under this crushing burden, that means that we actually take ownership of just a little bit of that weight. It means that we, we put our shoulder in and help someone else carry that weight and the effects of the, the fall. I move my heart closer to those who are suffering and, and, and experiencing the devastating effects of a broken world. Because honestly, if we think about it, none of us have it as bad as we could. Does anybody out there think you have it as bad as you could? probably not. Most of us have it pretty good. There's always someone worse off. And unless we mourn the brokenness of the world, the suffering of the world that is caused, we will, we will never desire or work to see it change. The suffering will always stay outside of ourselves and we'll, we'll never see it alleviated. So, so Jesus is commending us to mourn and lament the suffering of the world because he would desire for us to move and to act and to shoulder the burden of the weight for others. And so if we don't look at those who are vulnerable, if we don't look at those who are poor, if we don't look at those who are hurting, who have it worse than us, the people who the Bible says God is actually on their side... And if we don't grieve with and for them, we'll never reach out to lighten their load. But, but what mourning is, it, it, it means that we actually take on the heart of God to take ownership of our neighbors, to love them. We should, our hearts should break over the suffering in the world as God's does. Secondly, our hearts should break over human rebellion human sin. As we saw in Romans chapter 8, all suffering is tied to the presence of sin in the world, whether it's direct or indirect. All suffering in the world is is a result of humanity's cosmic treason. So in the Old Testament, when the Israelites sat in an ash heap in Jerusalem after the Babylonians had come and completely destroyed their city, burned it down, and killed many of them and took others off into exile, when they sat in that ash heap, they didn't just mourn their suffering. They mourned the sin that caused their suffering. If you, if you read the Old Testament, many of us are doing a old, uh, Bible read-through right now. and We've been reading through, and the one I'm doing, we've been reading through Ezra and Nehemiah And many of these prophets, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel, this has stuck out to me. Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel, chapter 9 of each one of those books is a prayer. I don't know if you ever noticed that before. That's a freebie. You'll use that on Jeopardy one day. (laughs) Chapter 9 is a prayer, and they're all prayers of repentance. So I want to read just as an example Ezra's prayer of repentance, if I can find it, which is in Ezra chapter what? 9, thank you. Ezra chapter 9. Here's what Ezra prays. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for, your, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, and he's talking about hundreds of years, from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities... We, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. And what Ezra was able to do in that moment was, was to take all of the sin of his, himself and his neighbors and all those who had gone before them hundreds of years, hundreds, uh, dozens of generations, and say... Our sin is my sin. And biblical mourning isn't averse to saying that our sin is my sin. Because all sin breaks the heart of God, and so it should break our hearts as well. Because ultimately, the problem with sin is that it steals from God's glory. It breaks his law. It offends him. And because of that, sin is worthy to be mourned because of the damage that it does to God's reputation. As the psalmist cried out in Psalm 119, My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And that's really the human predicament from top to bottom that people do not keep God's law. And not only does this offend God, not only does it besmirch His glory and steal from it, but it actually brings sinners to ruin. Sin brings people to ruin. It crushes them. Many of you have have walked that road. Many of you have loved ones who have walked that road where they continue to choose sin until sin becomes habit and second nature and they cannot free themselves from it until it crushes them and breaks them and brings them to ruin. That should cause our hearts to mourn. To grieve when we see the, the ruin that brings sins in, that sin brings into the world. So do you mourn for the sin that's in the world? Do you mourn for the sin that's around you? When you when you watch or read the news, when you're confronted with the sin and brokenness and folly and corruption and, and suffering in the world, what's your first response to that? When you see something really crazy on the news, what's your first response? Is it to click and find out more because you're curious and you're interested and you're just kind of intrigued? How bad can this get? Is it curiosity or is it disgust? I can't believe how sinful those people are. I can't believe someone would ever do something like that. Is it disgust or when you read the news and see the brokenness in the world is your first response to mourn, to grieve, to be broken over what people are doing? Against God and against their own good, inter- their own self interests. So this should be, in one sense, a litmus test to our own heart in comparison to God's. Does our heart break for the things that God's does? And third, the third point here, our hearts should break over the suffering of the world. Our hearts should break over the sin in the world. Our hearts should break over our own sin. Because we can mourn over the things that are outside of us. We can mourn over the things that are in the newspaper or on our phones. But do we take that inside? Because if we fail to come to terms with the grievous evil that's inside of us, then we will fall dreadfully short of being the kind of mourners that Jesus wants us to be. The Bible has such a high view of God that it never backs down from calling sin, sin, from calling it what it is. And if we're honest with ourselves, none of us has really come to terms with the depth and the gravity and the ugliness of our own sin. None of us has successfully wrapped our heads around our own treason against our Creator. So, the Bible isn't ashamed to call us out, like James chapter 4, 8 and 9. I mean, James just, he doesn't even hold back. He says this Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's saying, Repent. Mourn over the sin that's in your own heart. Don't just skate over it. Don't just ignore it. Don't just suppress it. But actually call it into the light. Because if we take offense at being called out on our sin, then we certainly don't view sin the way that God does. If we take offense at being called out on our sin, then we certainly have not entered into this state of blessedness that Jesus commends and reserves for those who mourn. So morning can't just stay outside of ourselves. It can't just be external. And it can't just be engaged at a superficial level. It must dive down deep to the very depths of our being, the, the core of our hearts, the darkest things within us, the things that we've never told anyone, the things that we've hidden away, the things that we've never wanted to look, look at straight on. This is why we practice confession every week, by the way, in our worship service. Some of us think that's because we're pessimists, which some of us are, but that's because we know that we need it. We know that we need to confess our sin, to come clean with God every week, not to be saved again, but to continue in a right relationship with our King, to put those things before Him and say, I'm done with this, I repent. Forgive me, thank you, Jesus, and we move on. And we should be practicing this daily as, as well. Because what happens here, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, is that when, when we have godly grief, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But a worldly grief, a, a grief that's not, that's only skin deep. A worldly grief produces death. So mourning personal sin actually causes us to acknowledge our Place in rebelling against and offending a holy God, acknowledging our place in the tragedy of the vandalism that humanity has brought upon God's world. So those are things we should mourn for. It, but how do we learn to do it? How do we learn to mourn? How do we walk in this kind of mourning without being eors or the most depressing people you've ever been around? It's not what we want. The, the Bible also commands us to be joyful, right? But honestly, most of us wake up in the morning, either consciously or subconsciously thinking, I'm going to do my best to avoid suffering today. I want to have a good day. I want to have a happy day. In any way, shape, or form that I I can. So so whether it's at the forefront of our our, our thoughts, at least our actions, what what we what we want to do, we have this drive to be happy, and so we want to be happy. And we think that happiness is, is only possible in the absence of pain. And we believe about God that all He wants for us is for us to be happy. And so since happiness and sadness are incompatible emotions, God doesn't want us to be sad. He always wants us to be happy. So let's pursue happiness in any way, shape, or form. But even Disney has figured this one out, brothers and sisters. Have you watched the movie Inside Out? Nobody? Okay, two of you. Good. All right. So in this movie, it, it's this depiction of emotions, and and you get to the, to the end of the movie, and there's this understanding that that's, that happiness and sadness are only their truest selves when they actually come together, and when we actually hold them, they're not mutually exclusive. The only sane response to a broken and fallen world is grief, and the only way to live in a useful and helpful way in this world is to actually enter into grief. And Jesus would say the only way to be comforted is to grieve and to mourn. So how do we mourn well? How do we mourn in a world, in this world in a way that's useful? Because the, the Bible gives us purpose in our mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. In other words, mourning according to Jesus, is part of the good life. It's a necessary part of being a disciple of Jesus. It's a necessary part of human flourishing. So how do we learn to mourn? How do we learn to mourn with purpose? Now, I don't have the the absolute answer here. I don't even know if I have a bead on the answer. But what I want to put before you right now is that the best way to learn how to mourn is to go here. to go to the Bible. There's a book in the Bible called Lamentations, which means mourning. A whole book just devoted to mourning the fall of Jerusalem, probably written by Jeremiah, who was also known as the mourning prophet or the weeping prophet. He was the guy who was always crying because he was looking around in the world and seeing the brokenness and seeing God's judgment poured out on the people that he loved, on a nation, on a city that he loved. The book of Psalms, the largest book in the Bible, right smack dab in the middle of your Bible, over half the Psalms are Psalms of lament or Psalms of mourning. This was the hymn book of the Old Testament of the, of the Jews. It was, it was the book they, that led them in worship, that taught them how to pray. And the book of Psalms taught them how to pray as mourners. It taught them how to weep. Taught them how to rejoice, but it also taught them how to weep. You come to the New Testament, we know that Jesus was a man who was a man of sorrows, the Bible calls him, and acquainted with grief. He stood outside the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who had died four days before, and he stood there, and what did he do? He wept. Jesus wept because of the sin of the world, because of the brokenness that brought about death, because of sickness, because of the people that looked at him and doubted that he could do anything about it. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, and what did he do anyway? He wept. Later on, he would come to Jerusalem, and he would stand above and look at Jerusalem, and he would weep over the city. You'd say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, what if, what if you had just accepted God's love for you. Just open your arms and your heart to him if you had just recognized me. But Jesus knew in that that mournful moment where I'm sure he was shedding tears, he knew he would walk into that city, he would be welcomed, and in less than a week he would be hanging on a cross because these people could not deal with him. They hated him, they wanted him dead, and they rejected him. If you want to learn how to mourn, open your Bible. Mourning is biblical and healthy because it presses us into the heart of God. What mourning does and opening our Bible does, is it gives us a view of, of how God sees the world as broken, as not fitting in with the way that he created it. It gives us a heart for our neighbors who are living under the weight And as a result, it should break our hearts for the things that break God's heart. And when that happens, it should drive us to our knees. So after we open the Bible to learn how to mourn, we should go to our knees in prayer to bring this all to God. To ask God to give us a heart for a broken world, to ask him to teach us to mourn. I think mourning is also healthy because it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. So we head back to Romans again. Romans chapter 8. Maybe your finger's still there. If not, you can find it. In Romans 8, it says this, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, one thing here that the creation itself is going to share in our freedom If you're a child of God, what Paul is saying here in Romans is that you are already experiencing that freedom in one way, shape, or form, and the creation's a little bit jealous. The earth is jealous of you because you're experiencing a freedom and a life and a hope and a joy that it doesn't get to experience until later, until Jesus comes and puts everything back The way it's supposed to be. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. For in this hope we are saved. Now, hope that is seen, this is verse 24. Hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now, the metaphor that Paul uses there is a metaphor of childbirth I have never given birth. I've been there five times when it's happened. I have had several kidney stones, though. And my wife had a kidney stone this last year, and I think she thinks it was worse. just give you that. But she didn't have an epidural for the kidney stone either. So childbirth is painful. It's excruciating. It's suffering. And if you think about back to Bible times, to when this was written, there were no epidurals. There was no pain relief. It was just excruciating, flat out suffering. But childbirth is always a suffering that carries with it a hope, a future joy, a promise. In John chapter 16, Jesus says this He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And he's talking to his disciples about what will happen when he dies. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. See, here's our hope. Our hope is this. Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted and implied in that statement is the fact that you cannot be comforted unless you first mourned and so mourning is implicitly a core essential part of the gospel. Mourning and comfort are at the heart of the gospel because mourning recognizes sin for what it is and weeps over it, is brokenhearted over it, both in the world and in my heart and wrapped up in the promise of comfort is the forgiveness that's offered in the gospel, that's offered by Jesus in the gospel as we come, as we put our faith in him and he says, I forgive you. Because I have died on your behalf and I have paid for what you've done against my father and against me, and I have come to put all things right back to how they were to be. But without mourning, we will never experience forgiveness. We will never experience the comfort that comes with the gospel, and we will never experience the comfort that comes on that last day. We cannot have faith without tears. And God is the one who does the comforting. 2 Corinthians says that God is the father of mercies and God of all comfort, that he comforts those who are downcast. In the book of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, it says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be, what? Mourning. Neither shall there be any more mourning or crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. So mourning the the brokenness of our world and the ugliness of our sin actually brings us closer to the heart of God. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted heart and, and saves the crushed in spirit. We can't even meet God until we've mourned. I was talking to Chad and Brittany Grogan after the service last week. And they uh, were kind of joking around. They said, oh, you've got to watch this video that uh, Chad's going to email to you. And Brittany said, yeah, it totally made Chad cry. And I don't think Chad's here to defend himself today. And then they started, they started talking about this. And apparently they have bets on when Chad is going to cry when they're watching specific TV shows or things. So um, he said, yeah, it's really good when I cry. You should watch it. You'll probably cry too. And what it was was an audition from the show America's Got Talent that took place a couple of weeks ago. And maybe you've seen this audition. Maybe you haven't. If not, look it up. And it's this gal who's actually a believer. I'm going to read part of her story in just a minute she came on to sing and it came out in her interviews they're asking her that she had she was a cancer survivor not just a cancer survivor but she actually had cancer at the time that she was battling with and she was just um, very joyful very confident person she sings this song it's just it's just beautiful so I encourage you to watch that well after that a few days later Carrie tells me hey you got to check this out Uh, one of her favorite bloggers Ann Voskamp, had reached out to this gal and said, hey, would you be willing to kind of share your story with my readers? And so she did. And this is what she wrote. Her name is Jane, but she goes by the stage name Nightbird. This is called God is on the Bathroom Floor. She says, I don't remember most of autumn because I lost my mind late in the summer, and for a long time after that, I wasn't in my body. I was a light bulb buzzing somewhere far. After the doctor told me I was dying, and after the man I married said he didn't love me anymore, I chased a miracle in California, and 16 weeks later, I got it. The cancer was gone. But when my brain caught up with it all, something broke. I later found out that all the tragedy at once had caused a physical head trauma, and my brain was sending false signals of excruciating pain and panic. I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe on the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep even with my head on the toilet. I've had cancer three times now and I've barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God that he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll say I just never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this, he can never say that he did not know me. I am God's downstairs neighbor banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I've called him a cheat and a liar and I meant it. I've told him I wanted to die and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise and sunset. Call me bitter if you want to, that's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. I'm sad too. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us. And I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him. And trace the veins in his arms. I remind myself that I'm praying to the God who let the Israelites stay lost for decades. They begged to arrive in the promised land, but instead he let them wander, answering prayers they didn't pray. For 40 years their shoes didn't wear out. Fire lit their path each night. Every morning he sent them mercy bread from heaven. I look hard for the answers to the prayers that I didn't pray. I look for the mercy bread that he promised to bake fresh for me each morning. The Israelites called it manna, which means what is it? And that's the same question I'm asking again and again. There's mercy here somewhere, but what what is it? What is it? What is it? I see mercy in the dusty sunlight that outlines the trees in my mother's crooked hands. In the blanket my friend left for me, in the harmony of the wind chimes. It's not the mercy that I asked for, but it is mercy nonetheless. And I learn a new prayer. Thank you. It's a prayer I don't mean yet, but I will repeat it until I do. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I am the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden from me. Even on days when I'm not so sick, sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy. I can't really explain it, but God is in there even now. I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. Look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. If you can't see him, look lower. Father, we're grateful for your mercies, which are new every morning. We praise you for your abundant love. You are merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Father, we delight in that mercy today, even when it's confusing, even when we don't know what to do with it, even when our eyes are filled with tears as we look at the brokenness of the world and the sin that runs rampant in the lives of our neighbors and in our own hearts. So Father, we come to you today asking you to teach us how to mourn. Would you break our hearts for the things that break yours, we pray. We pray this all in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.